Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Since 1983, Eddie Trunk has been the voice for fans of rock, hard rock, and heavy metal. A best-selling author, host of TV's That Metal Show, and seven national radio shows, including Trunk Nation, daily on Sirius XM. Interesting. Eddie offers the world his news-making interviews, passionate analysis, honest commentary, and who knows what else. So welcome to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Hey everybody, it's Eddie Trunk, and this is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. New episodes every Thursday, Podcast One, also on Apple Podcasts, and now available totally free as well on Spotify. Don't even need a subscription. Make sure you get on board and listen, download, uh, favorite, subscribe, do everything you can do with this podcast and make it a part of your weekly listening. Again, you get new ones every Thursday with great interviews with some of your favorite rock artists. Great to bring it to you. And as usual, the interviews come to you courtesy of my Sirius XM show, which is called Trunk Nation and airs live Monday through Friday. 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time, nightly replays, 10 to midnight Eastern, and, of course, on demand on the SiriusXM app. If you're listening in the U.S. or Canada, please join me every day for Rock Talk news and interviews on SiriusXM, on Trunk Nation, on 106 volume. Here on this show, you're only getting a tiny sampling of what I do on a daily basis on the volume channel. Hope everybody had a great week. Thank you for being here. We got two great interviews for you. As usual, I remind you to keep up with everything I have going on by following on social media at Eddie Trunk, Twitter, Instagram, fan page on Facebook, and EddieTrunk.com is the official online home. Also, to let you know, I am on Cameo. If you'd like custom personalized videos for you or someone as a gift, be sure to book those videos directly on the Cameo website. Don't use the app, if possible, on your phone, as you will pay more, and I will get billed more. (laughs) So do it on Cameo.com. Just go to Cameo.com, the actual website, search my name, and you will see how you can get a personalized video Better if you do it on the site, but any way you do it, I appreciate it. So check that out if that's of interest. I've had a lot of fun making some great cameo videos for a lot of very, very kind folks around the world. Music news, all access membership, all on my website as well. So we got a long double dip this week, so I'm going to get right to it. Coming up second, Graham Bonnet. 
Graham Bonnet is an interesting story. He's been singing now for, what, 50 years, and he has done great records with Alcatraz, the Michael Schenker group, Rainbow, and he's once again started Alcatraz up again. We'll talk about that and some of the other past things he's done coming up second. Coming up first, Roger Glover of Deep Purple. Deep Purple have a new album that some are saying is their finest album in decades called Whoosh. This is a band that said they were ending and packing it in. And as you'll hear from Roger, they may even make another record since they can't tour. Very creative time for a band that has all its members in their mid-70s, but still making some great music. So we'll talk about all of that with Roger Glover. We'll talk even a little bit about Richie Blackmore. We'll talk about the new album. I had a lot of fun a couple years ago touring with Deep Purple through Mexico. It was a tremendous honor. Got to know the guys, and it really was awesome. So it was great to catch up with Roger, who lives in Switzerland. You'll hear from him, and then you'll hear from Graham Bonnet this week. And there is a tie between these two. Because when Graham Bonnet did the album... For Rainbow Down to Earth, Roger Glover played bass on that record, produced that record, and wrote the lyrics on that record that Graham Bonnet sang. So although both of these interviews were done at separate times, there is a pretty substantial link between Roger Glover and Graham Bonnet bonded over that one classic Rainbow album, Down to Earth. So keep that in mind when you hear these two interviews as well. So let's get right to them. We'll come back and we'll start with Roger, and then second, we'll bring you Graham on this week's Eddie Trunk Podcast. Hi, this is Chris Myers. For more than three decades, I've covered some of the biggest events in sports and talked with some of the most fascinating personalities. But now I want to invite you to join me for my new podcast, CMI, the Chris Myers interview on Podcast One. Covered a lot of events, World Series, Red Sox, White Sox breaking through at their time. The Super Bowl as recently as Mahomes and the Chiefs coming back against the 49ers. I was there to grab Brady after he had that tremendous comeback against the Falcons in the Super Bowl and some tough times, the 89 Earthquake World series that rocked the bay bridge and first to talk to oj simpson live after both of his trials and on the air through the 1996 atlanta olympic bombings informing people as best we could at the time we'll go in depth on stories past present and future to the effect of the world of sports and everybody in and around it from current athletes hall of famers and some people you and i know hope you tune in to cmi the chris myers interview on apple podcast podcast one and spotify Eddie Trunk back with you. I already set the stage for these podcasts. We got two great interviews for you this week. Start off with a man that I spoke to who lives in Switzerland. We had a great conversation about the new Deep Purple album, Whoosh, and a whole lot more. We kick it off with Roger Glover. Here he is. I had a chance to spend some time with his band on the road throughout Mexico. We had some great journeys. We had a great lunch. A legendary band that is on a long goodbye tour that apparently is getting longer because they've just released a great new album called Whoosh. Here is Roger Glover of Deep Purple. Raj, how are you, my friend? I'm great, mate. I'm great. You remember that lunch, eh? Wow. <laughs> we we That's stumbled. Good, yeah. I don't remember what city it was in, but we stumbled upon some some spot, and I uh, remember the band playing, and we had a couple of drinks. It was a wonderful afternoon. 
That's right. They were, uh, there were more in the band than there were eating in the restaurant. <laughs> That's very true, <laughs> actually. Very cool. <laughs> yeah, we, we have a great photo of that somewhere. Uh, but anyway, how have you been, Roger? I mean, it's uh, it's crazy times in the world, and Deep Purple is such a global touring band. It must be quite strange for you to have to be sort of tethered down right now. Yes, it is. Very strange. Uh, I mean, this is the longest time I've ever had off. Is that right? And yet it's full. It's full of stuff. <laughs> Between cook, cooking, cleaning, gardening. <laughs> well, you've got a young and, uh, one. You've got a young one, too, don't you? I have two young ones. Well, 11 and 9. Well, that's pretty young. That's uh, that's uh, yeah. that's younger than mine, so I know what it's like. It's, it's a lot of work, too. Yeah, well, my older one just came over for a couple of weeks. She's uh, 40-something now and uh, married and my two grandkids. Oh, so wow. the four of them over. Wow, that's amazing. So it's been a hectic, hectic time. I keep thinking this is a rehearsal for permanent retirement. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I don't want that to happen. So we live in hope. Um, we recorded this album last year. And so um, the original release date was June sometime. And it got put back to August. And it, it's odd having sitting on a new album for so long without it getting released. So it's almost like you know it's old hat to us now, and yet everyone's hearing it for the first time. So yeah, I was going to ask you. I, used to that. I was going to ask you about the timeline on it because, if I'm not mistaken, when we were traveling together and we did run through Mexico together, I remember some rumblings at that time from some of the guys in the band about the idea of possibly doing a new record. So at that point, it was still in the talking stages, I think. And then I'm assuming when you wrapped up touring, everybody said, "Yeah, let's go for it." And and you once again connect with the Bob with Bob Ezrin. Uh, talk about the timeline, and and given that you guys are sort of uh, winding down was there differences in the band as to whether you should do a new record or not no there wasn't actually there was it was uh it was quite organic we all wanted to do it i think the thing is uh, since we met bob um we've done three albums with him now and there's a sort of i think there's a feeling that at our age in our 70s this is towards the end of our career and we've yet yeah, we've had three um sort of amazing albums that, that showed a, a sort of a late flowering of the band in our career, if you like. And I'm very happy about that. What, yeah. what, what is it? What is it about the connection with the band to Bob Ezra? And, you know, I've talked to Alice Cooper about this and he's got a long history with them and, and a few other artists. And I've actually talked to Bob and interviewed him a, a, a time or two. What, what is it for you? What is it about the purple guys that he's brought out of you guys that you feel so comfortable and, and wanting to be creative with him? Well, he came to see the band play in Toronto uh, eight, nine years ago. Um, and we didn't meet him that night, but the next day we had a, a, a breakfast meeting with him. And he said some great things. He said he really loved the musicianship and the, and the spontaneity of the band. And, uh, he said, uh, he said, forget trying to, you know, write purple type songs, forget all, you know, hit parades, forget success, just be yourselves and stretch out. And there were key words because we started writing uh, whatever our imagination took us. And I think we had a, a whole new sort of writing experience. The last three albums are full of songs we could never have written back in the 70s or the 80s or the 90s or whatever. Um, so, the, the, you know, the, we, that's precious, that connection. We got along with him really well. 
he works very efficiently in the studio. He encourages spontaneity and he encourages um, the freshness of all recording at the same time. We all go in the studio at the same time and record them. We don't layer things on, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that, that keeps it fresh too. And we don't always know quite exactly what we're going to play until we actually get in the studio and start recording it. And then it's it's done very quickly. I mean, the backing track's less than two weeks. So are, you, Sundays off. Uh, so are you writing in the studio? Do you actually go in the, into the studio with him with a clean slate and create on the fly? Or do you go in, does everybody come in with some rough ideas musically? No, we, we, we have a writing session first. We have the first writing session is just the five of us. And we just jam around and have fun and explore riffs and chord sequences and whatever. And then just have fun. And then we have a second writing session where we pick out the ones that we think have the most potential and work on them. And then we have a week with Bob where we play him what we've done and he you know, pulls it apart and puts it back together again. Um, and that's when we go in the studio. The, the, the lyrics and the, 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 the vocal line is, um, comes afterwards. I mean, Ian Gillen's fond of saying that Deep Purple is an instrumental band with vocal accompaniment. <laughs> <laughs> because that's how it was to start with. I mean, when Richie and John just started playing and Pacey, I mean, it was just like lightning. Whoosh, you know, well, there's that word again, whoosh. Um, and uh, so when we get to finish the track, that's when Ian Gillen and I go and, and have our own writing session. We go away somewhere, just the two of us, and we listen to all the tracks and figure out what the words are. Ezrin, so it's, uh, that's, it's always been that way. Yeah, Ezrin has a reputation uh, of being quite tough in the studio, quite a taskmaster. Um, ha- has he been that way with you guys, and how have you reacted to it? If so, um, yes. He, I mean, I I like that. It, uh, he's he's good at he's very creative. Comes up with ideas and stuff, and we don't always finish the songs. You know, uh, before we get to the studio, sometimes things happen in the studio. So, especially the spontaneous bits, they happen only in the studio. Um, but he brings us together, uh, and he saves us a lot of arguments about whether it's going to be B flat or F. <laughs> you know, he, he goes, no, no, it's going to be F. Uh, okay. So, two hours of arguments, gone. Yeah. So, we work very quickly, and uh, I think that's good. He, he, I remember Don was saying that uh, he did a solo on, on one of the things. And uh, after he'd finished it, um, he said, uh, yeah, that, that wasn't bad. I'd, I'd like to, this is Don talking. I'd like to have another go. And Bob would say, no, it's fine. So, <laughs> musicians, are, you know, they're, they're insecure about their own stuff right. and always want to improve. But he's the one with the objective view that says, no, that's perfect. That's great. It's It's live. It's real. Right. And of course, Raj, you you yourself are a producer and have produced many things in your career. Has there been, have you learned some things from working with Bob or or maybe even vice versa? I mean, have you guys talked to the craft of producing because you've got, you know, a resume yourself in producing records? How is the, how has he rubbed off on you or perhaps maybe you guys have uh, shared some ideas? Well, he does give me the, 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 the merit of, of recognizing the fact that I'm also a producer. And so we talk a lot. Um, he makes the decisions, but occasionally he'll turn around to me and say, what do you think? 
And uh, I found out that we have the same kind of attitude towards production, although he's got more energy than I ever did. Mm. Um, but the, that is, uh, what's a producer's job? A producer's job is to create an atmosphere in which people can express themselves freely. It's as simple as that. There's other things involved, of course, technical aspects and engineering and so forth. But the real thing is that the producer's presence has to create a kind of feeling of creativity. And he does that. He, do, he does that marvelously, and which is why, of course, he's such a great producer. I never thought of myself as a great producer, but you know, he said he bowed to me. And he said you've done some great stuff. So, wow, oh, thank you. But, uh, I didn't expect that, and we've become firm friends. I mean, we are very close now. Yeah, I'll tell you the records. It, it's incredible to hear Deep Purple making music this this great uh, this this far into your career. It's it's really wonderful, and the fact that a band like Deep Purple with a catalog like you have even wants to continue to create new music is pretty remarkable. There's a lot of bands, as you well know, that are in your uh, age group and history group with a huge catalog like you have that, frankly, uh, don't have an interest in making new music. They're just going to go play the catalog and play the hits every summer. Clearly not the mandate for Deep Purple. You, you feel as musicians it's still very important, regardless of the commercial aspects, to create new music. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it is. I mean, we we do what we do and we can't stop. You know, there's an impetus in us to, to, to create more. And I think, you know, as much as we've had a long career, it's also been a career of, of definite sections. When Steve joined the band, um, he asked me, he said, well, what do you want from me? I said, I want you to be yourself. You know, we don't want someone to play like Richie or, or look like Richie or sound like Richie or, you know, then there'd be terrible comparisons. We have to change. We have to, do a complete change. And he said, so I can play anything? I said, yeah, play anything you want. We'll let you know if it, if it suits us or not. And so that's, that, that was the basis. And that, was, to me, was a rebirth. And uh, I think in many ways, meeting Bob was also another rebirth. Mm-hmm. So it's, 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 uh, it, it keeps going. I mean, <laughs> I remember John Lord once described Deep Purple as an atomic toy. <laughs> and it seems to be that way i mean it's, it's got a life of its own we're just you know we're just part of the band that's just continuing and why, why stop and, and the writing for whoosh uh making uh creating the songs actually writing the songs you talk about having a writing session typically how long does that go on for is that a fairly quick process or do you uh or do you labor over it a bit how, how long did it take to write this record when you all got together well, we found out the hard way that after about seven or eight days of constant jamming, you're, you're blown out. And so it's, it's no more than eight, nine days, that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we work usually fairly, uh, we stick to uh, some kind of discipline. We, we start around midday and we go through till about six or seven um, and then go for a meal. Mm-hmm. So it's it's quite relaxed, you know. It, it's a kind of relaxed intensity, if you like. Um, and then we have the second writing session, which is pretty much the same, except we're working on the ideas that came from the first session. And by the time we get to Bob, you know, they're more or less finished. Um, and until, of course, he will undoubtedly say, "No, that's not a verse. That's a chorus. Change it." You know, <laughs> no. Well, okay. So we trust him. We trust him to to guide us, and he can hear things that we can't. I want, so, uh, 
I want to I want to ask you about a track on the record that you actually, if I'm not mistaken, is a very old Deep Purple song that you conjured up again called "And the Address." Can you talk a little bit about uh, the decision to record that again? Well, these days, every album we make could possibly be the last album, and after having you know two great albums with Bob, um, there's always the possibility that this could be our last album. And Bob came up with that. He said, well, wouldn't it be fun if you did a, you know, because we've made us a little habit of, of doing a cover on every album, just for fun, just for our fun for us. For us. And um, he said, how about the first track on the first Deep Purple album back in 1968? How about if you covered that and it's the last track on this album? It's a kind of neat little circle rounded. So we thought, why not? And why not? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, the thing about that that's interesting to me is the only guy who's in the band now that was on that that recording on that very first record is Ian Pace. So how many uh, were you or Ian Gillen, were, were you guys familiar with the song? Are you are you very well versed in the Purple Catalog on the stuff that you're not on, whether it's the Coverdale Hughes stuff or the real early stuff? The, the pieces of the catalog you aren't a part of, are you aware of it? Are you Do you listen to it? Do you know it? Yeah, yeah, I, I've listened to it. Um, but when Gillen and I first joined the band in 69, we learned what their set list was and, and the address was in it. So we played that quite a lot in the very early days. Oh, okay. And, uh, and Mandrake Root and uh, Help and Hey Joe, you know, we, we learned those. And they, then we started writing stuff. Then we started, I mean, within a couple of weeks of, of doing some gigs with Purple, doing the old stuff, we started having rehearsals and, and Speed King, Into the Fire, Child in Time all came tumbling out. Um, and we, you know, it was just, it was, we didn't even try. It just, things happened. So it was a, a magic experience in a way. Yeah, truly, truly a magical history and career and legacy of Deep Purple. You know, you mentioned John Lord and, and one of the things that I really, uh, really upsets me is because the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame took so long to induct you guys that John Lord was no longer with us when that happened. Can you talk about that evening from your perspective and what the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame meant to you and how, how you felt about the whole thing? Well, since we got turned down twice, it was declined twice. And despite you know other people, you know, um, Metallica, uh, Rush, people saying, you know, you should be in there. After two de de declines, we decided uh, we don't really need that. We never actually wanted that in the first place. It never occurred to us that we were missing something. And so we always felt like saying, well, go shove it. Um, but uh, we came to a realization, Ian Gillen said, you know, it's, you know, think about it this way. It's not for us. It's for the fans. And it's for your family and your friends. That's what it's really for. And don't take it so personally, seriously. Um, so there's a, the, the main thing about the evening that, that I remember is I'm really pissed off that Nick Simper wasn't there. Nick Simper was the, the original bass player. And the original singer, he was you know, nominated or um, got it, but the, the bass player didn't. And that really pissed me off. I found it rather embarrassing. 
Yeah, there's a lot. Uh, that's the that's the crazy thing about that institution is that once you finally do get in, the arbitrary choices for which members they include in the induction and which aren't are sometimes head scratching and mind boggling. So that certainly did not make any sense. You know, of course, Blackmore was not there. I guess he declined. Was that your understanding? Well, yes, it was our understanding for months before that he was not going to show up. Right. And uh, and that was, you know, the, the stories about we we stopped him from coming, which we didn't. That was his decision. Um, there's lots of stories banding around. There's like conspiracy theories now. <laughs> um, but the truth of it is, all, all we wanted to do, if we were going to do it, we wanted to play as the band that we were with Steve Morse and Don Airy. Right. Now, the band... <laughs> And uh, if Richie had wanted to come and play Smoke on the Water, I, I would have been fine with that. Would have been fine with that. We, in fact, we half expected him to turn up anyway, just because you can never know with Richie what he's going to do. <laughs> um, you thought out of the shadows there he would come emerging during the middle of a song you, or something? You, you never know. You never know. <laughs> but um, he, he deserves that, you know, of course. Right. So, I, I would have been fine with that. I mean, you you have, Raj. One one thing on one thing on Blackmore, and I won't I won't pain you on this, but I, I got to ask you this because you have a, a an interesting perspective on Blackmore because you not only played with them in Deep Purple, but you worked with them pretty extensively in Rainbow. With with you know, I just talked to Graham Bonnet was on this show the other day. We talked a lot about Down to Earth, and then of course when Joe Lynn Turner came in. So you've you've worked with Richie over the decades in a lot of different. Uh, settings and capacities, and in the band, and producing, and what have you. What What do you? What is your? Uh, you know, what is your takeaway from from him? What What do you think uh, when you you look at his uh, his body of work and what he does now or what he does not do? What What do you think makes him tick? Do you think it's somewhat of a, a put on just to create all this mystery around him, or do you just think that's really how he's wired? I think both. I think he is wired that way, but he enjoys it. He enjoys putting people on edge and people not quite knowing what he's up to. Um, that's just his personality, I guess. But he's, you know, first and foremost, a musician. And you've got to take the music away from the man. Because the music alone is brilliant. He was an you know, incredible player, an auteur, an instigator. He had, a, he had, he was on his road and we were with him on that road for a while. And that's what I feel about him now with Rainbow. I remember um, when he asked me to join Rainbow, I said, well, um, I don't want any more changes. Let's, let's have a, you know, a consistency going. That didn't happen. <laughs> but that's what I wanted. Um, but he's, uh, he's mercurial and he follows his own instincts. And when he, when I got sort of eased out of the band in 73, um, there were sort of plans to try and carry on without him and stuff like that. I can't remember now. But um, on the very last gig, he didn't say anything to me except pass me on the stairs. And he said, um, it's not personal, it's business. Hmm. And that actually meant a lot because although I was going through hell being thrown out of the biggest band in the world at the time, um, that, that meant from him, he was sincere about that. It, it wasn't personal. And uh, we always seem to get along pretty well. So uh, I, I'd never expected him to turn around and ask me to produce Rainbow. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what I was when we did the album. We, we started it without without a proper bass player, without a singer. 
Um, it was kind of chaos, and so I ended up playing bass and writing all the songs with him. Um, and it was only when the album was finished that Don Airy and, and Cozy Powell said, how come you're not in the band? <laughs> so I, I, just, I guess words were had, and eventually I got knocked into the band. So that's how I joined Rainbow. And it was a, it was a different setup to Purple. Purple was a democratic unit, more or less. Uh, but Rainbow was his. He He was the governor. So I understood that. Do you have any? When we had purple again in Perfect Strangers. I mean, it came back to being almost as democratic as it was in the early days, but it, it wasn't quite because Richie got so used to being, you know, the man in charge, and uh, and so history, you know, is made by ups and downs. You have any, after Perfect Strangers. You have any relation? Perfect Strangers. I think we went. I'm we went sorry, through a bit of a down period. After yeah. Perfect Strangers, we went through a bit of a down period, um, and the music wasn't happening, and then Ian Gillen got fired, and Jolene Turner came, and then Gillen came back. and It was a bit weird in the doldrums, really. Um, but when Steve joined, it, it, um, it changed. And we changed back to the, 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 uh, the arrangement in the early days was that we all shared everything, the writing credits. We all shared in it because we felt that this wasn't a pop song. This wasn't regular kind of music. This was the way Ian Pace played the drums was as much a part of the writing of the band as any riff or vocal. And so we all shared everything. And, and to me, that was great. Um, and it wasn't until Steve Morse joined the band that we said, right, let's go back to that. And uh, to me, it's, 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 free, it's freeing. There's no politics involved. There's no egos involved. There's no hurt feelings. It's, we all join, we all join in together. Yeah, and to me that's great. That's what makes that's what makes this band what it is now. Um, yeah, so, uh, but Richie, I mean, whatever he wants to do, he still. I mean, he's going to do it anyway. <laughs> he's, he's, I think he's on this road, and he's just, he's on this road. He's the road of his own making, and I can completely understand that. He believes in himself as an artist much more than a celebrity. Right. Yeah, I'm going back to Steve Morse. I mean, Steve does uh, an unbelievable job. And I, I remember when Steve first joined Purple and the first record you made with him and seeing you guys on that first tour and then having seen you play recently with him. I mean, he he has really put his imprint on Deep Purple. And if I'm not mistaken, he's probably the longest consecutive ten, tenured member or, or certainly guitar player in the band, I would think, at this yes. point. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. I think I, I'm not counting, but um, uh, I think people tell us that. You know, we don't actually make notes of things. But people tell us, "Oh, Steve's been in the band longer than Richie." Oh, okay. It's not something we think about that much, but uh, sure, it's true. And the consistency since then, since uh, '94, there's only been one change, and that's when John left and Don joined. So it's. It's it's good to be in a consistent band. You know each other really well, and there's no, you know, you get you respect each other and love each other. What's the plan here, Roger? As far as you guys are in the same boat as everybody, as far as the ability to tour, uh, it's just sort of in different parts of the world are in different stages, but it's very difficult to do. And obviously, uh, you, you, most of you, I believe, love being on the road. And you make a new record, you want to go out and play some of it live for the people, along with all the classics. Is there? Are you just in a holding pattern, or are or are there places in the world where you would be comfortable playing and things are being lined up? Well, we're at the mercy of everything like everyone else, and uh, our agent, 
as all the tours that we were doing this year um, have just been put back 12 months. So they're all booked in, mostly in Europe, I think, festivals and stuff, uh, for next year, um, next summer. Now, I don't know what the situation is going to be then. There's no guarantee that we're going to be able to do that. If things get worse or things stay the same, it's not going to be good. Um, so all we can do is live in hope, you know. And the, the other thing I think about is well, if every band is in the same position as us and touring comes back next year, every band is going to be on the road. Yes. So there's going to be fierce, fierce competition. Yes. For an audience that's already been, you know, um, no money, out of out of work, out of jobs, uh, or some of them anyway. So it's it's um, it, it's not a great prospect, but we live in hope. Yeah. No. I've... In the meantime, go ahead. In the meantime, yeah, we've got so much time off. The idea of doing another album has come up. Is that right? Yeah. But um, not at the moment. We can't travel. We all live around different parts of the world, but. Um, I don't know, sometime early next year, maybe we'll go to the studio. We'll see. And you would go to Nashville and work with Bob again? No, I, actually, we won't. I spoke to Bob the other day about it. Um, the studio that we work at in Nashville um, has been sold. It's now going to be a book of flats or something, uh, which is a shame because it was a really, really good studio, and we felt very comfortable there. We've done three albums there, so it must have been comfortable. Um, but uh, we won't be doing that again. And uh, Bob said, I don't think I want to do it in Nashville. So I don't know where we'll do it, uh, Europe or Canada or somewhere. I don't know. All the details have yet to be worked out, but it's just a, a, just a thought at the moment. I can't confirm it. It sounds like you're going to uh, have to, it sounds like maybe you're going to have to re-record the second song on the first Deep Purple record now. <laughs> now have, it as a, have it as a bookend for the next record. But, but look, you know, you, you bring up, you bring up a great point, Roger, that I talk to my audience about all the time. I mean, everybody is sidelined when this starts up. Some said the touring world was already oversaturated. It's going to be double that. And then against the backdrop yeah. of uh, of people, unfortunately, not in great financial situations. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. And and among the members of Deep Purple, I mean, what is the feeling about where we're at with this pandemic? You guys are older. I know Ian has some underlying health issues. Maybe some of the other guys do as well. So So what is the feeling? Is the feeling like, among some of the guys, I'm ready to go tomorrow or and get out on the road, or are there's others in the band that feel like, hey, I'm not going anywhere until there's a vaccine and this is 100% eradicated? I don't know how the others feel about it. We just, we've all just accepted the situation. But how they feel about it, I don't know. Um, how do you feel? But the situation is that we can't tour, so there's no point in actually you know, feeling bad about it. It just, that's, that's, that's a fact. We can't tour, so make the best of it. That's all. That's the only. That's how I feel. Make the best of it. Do do things you didn't have time to do before. You know, I'm working on my book, my, my memoir, um, painting, writing songs, and family life. It, it fills up the day. So how, I've got no complaints about that. How um, far along yeah, are you on the book? I'd say probably about a fifth of the book. <laughs> it's a lot of this. Yeah, the more I write, the more I realize I've yet to write. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's been a long life on the road, basically. 
if I think back to uh, I was in bands eight years before I joined Purple. Purple's now been going fifty years, so it's nearly sixty years of being in a band and traveling, and so many eras and so many different stories are there. And uh, the, the real challenge now is for me to remember them. Uh, sometimes in a, in a conversation in a, in a bar or something, I'll tell a story and go, oh, God, I must put that in the book. <laughs> <laughs> so i, I got to keep... But I've, I've recently got an editor, so I'm, I'm reinvigorated, so I'm, I'm writing a lot more now. And you live in Switzerland. I visited that country last year. I loved it. I was in Zurich. Uh, tell me uh, what it's like there in terms of the situation with the pandemic. Are you guys in fairly good shape, or is there still a lot of things locked down and, uh, and a lot of concern there? Um, of course there's concern, uh, but it's very calm. I think the government's done a pretty good job. Um, they're trying to open up now. I, uh, I heard today that they're, they're going to allow... Uh, performances, whether it's music or, or whatever, uh, up to a thousand people. Um, and then, you know, the, the next bit of news was that the um, COVID thing's gone up. The, the, so the numbers aren't very good. So that now they've changed it to a thousand people to, uh, it, well, we'll treat each one individually and see what, what it's like. People wear masks, but not all the time. Um, everyone's being very sort of calm about it, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, we go over to Germany, um, which is just around the corner, and you you wear masks there all the time. Mm-hmm. So it's um, we're I think we're in, in a kind of a, a nice situation here. I, I, the worst thing is thinking about all the people who are suffering far more than we are. Yeah, for and sure. I keep thinking of people with you know three or four kids in a in a, in a two room apartment yes. up, uh, up on a skyscraper. I mean, it must be just hell. And that's all I can think about. You know, I'm, I'm, I just feel very lucky to be here. I'm, I'm looking out the window at, at greenery, countryside. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, I, I, I fear for the world. I do. But, you know, I was reading a book um, that my daughter recommended. And it's, um, I'm trying to remember the name of it now. Um, anyway, it doesn't matter. But it, it's totally looking at the history and the history of plagues and things has gone on for thousands and thousands of years. And each one is deadly. And they pass. Things pass. And, I mean, one hopes that this will happen here. But this has been worse than probably any other pandemic before it because other pandemics were usually one country or a few countries. This is the world. This is every country in the world, and and I don't think we've ever faced that before. So, yeah, it's it's very daunting. Too quick. Um, Whether even if even if a vaccine comes along, and we we tour next year, there's going to be people who are scared to do to go, right? Because they still got used to the fact that they have to avoid other people. So that's that's another factor. And you mentioned uh, Wush earlier. Yeah, Wush comes from the fact that we've been around 50 years but it doesn't feel like it and in, if you think in cosmic terms our lives are little specks you know the planet will be here long after we're gone and I think there's a kind of an overriding feeling on this album about that from nothing at all to man alive there's a feeling that we're, you know we're at a moment in time but you know mother nature just shrugs her shoulders and said yeah I'll be okay yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's a it's incredible because you listen to an album like Wush and it's hard to believe that Deep Purple has been doing this 
as long as you have because it doesn't sound that way at all. It sounds like a, a very fresh and invigorating band. But I got to say, you know, you bring up a theme, and I'll, I'll let you go here in a second because I know you want to get on with your day, but you bring up a theme that I've talked to a lot of older rock artists about, and a lot of fans have asked me this too. Given this pandemic, given the fact that you could be off the road for a year or two, they, they worry that bands that have toured, uh, toyed with the idea of retirement, like you guys have, uh, calling your tour the long goodbye, they worry that this pandemic may force that retirement a little bit more. It might abbreviate it. It might cause you guys to say, you know what? Screw it. We don't want to go back out there because it's too crazy. It's too congested. This is maybe the th- the thing that we needed to say. We're done. We'll just make a record and say goodbye. Is that a concern for you that this, what we're going through in the world, could sort of, uh, you know, put a button on Deep Purple inadvertently uh, sooner than you wanted to? Well, sure, it could. It could. Um, I don't think there's any desire in the band for that to happen. Uh, I remember saying that that gig in Mexico we did in March, which is one of the, probably one of the last big uh, events uh, before COVID struck. I said almost like, as a joke, I said, "Wouldn't it be funny if this is the last gig we ever did?" Now that's a possibility now, so it's not a joke anymore. But this it does feel like a, um, this is like um, practicing for retirement. Yeah. Although I often say when people say, when are you going to retire? I retired when I was 19. That was the last job I had. <laughs> so this, is, this has all been my retirement. <laughs> That's very true. Um, last thing, Roger. When you talk about the end, assuming touring comes back, and we all hope it does, and that you guys can get back out there sooner than later, because having seen so many live shows with you guys recently, it's it's incredible how great the band still sounds. It really is. But when you what when you if you can do it on your terms, how would you like to see the last Deep Purple gig go down? Because you know us as fans, we we think, oh, it would be amazing if all the surviving members who have ever been in the band were to come out and play a song or play a few songs in a celebration of the band's entire history. A lot of the artists are like, no, we're just going to play our set, and that's that's the end of it. How, how would you? How do you envision? Uh, the 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 final show, if you could plan it for Deep Purple. Well, personally speaking, I wouldn't plan that. I don't like the idea of naming the final gig. It's too emotional, too stressful. Where would we do it? Tokyo, New York, London. You know, it's just too much stress, and and just make a big deal out of it. I don't think it's necessary. I think uh, we're a working band, and we work until we don't work. And all of a sudden you say, well, that was the last gig. Mm. So no hoopla. I don't like the hoopla. Yeah, and we've seen different bands do that. I mean, a band like Rush is a prime example of a band that did not do the hoopla. They did not do a final show. They did not even call it a farewell tour. They just kind of gave a little nod to the crowd saying, this is probably going to be the end, and it was. So you're more in the understated camp than going out and saying, you know, here we are, come from all over the world, all the guys are coming back, here's the last show. You don't want any of that fanfare. Yeah. Now, the idea of all the guys coming back, that's been mooted around as John Lord's idea, but um, I don't know how serious he was. He was was asked in a thing, you know, wouldn't it be a good idea? And he said, oh, that'd be a good idea. Something like that. But I can't imagine us all getting together with past members to do a a nostalgic one gig. Uh, I don't, it won't happen. 
I well, I tell you one, you know, never say never, but I don't think it would happen. Mm-hmm. Well, so that's my take on it. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, it's a you know, it's an amazing story with Purple that continues at least on record. I urge everybody to check out Woosh because it really is a fantastic record, as have been the last couple. And I'll tell you, when I've seen you do material from the recent records in the live set, it sits brilliantly in there with all the other classic stuff. It really does. It really, it, yeah. it all sounds like one great Deep Purple concert. It's not like oh, they're playing something new. This doesn't fit, or you can tell this isn't of the same quality it it, i can sincerely say that having seen so many live shows with you guys recently that i was as as excited to hear the newer material as i was to hear the classics and that's not something you can say and a lot of uh, that i can say about a lot of bands so it really is pretty remarkable Well, thank you for that. Um, how much does that cost? It's a lovely compliment. <laughs> another lunch, <laughs> another lunch in Mexico one of these days. <laughs> no, bless you for saying that, man. It's great. Yeah. I mean, that's how we feel. We we just love what we do. We love playing music. And the, the, the long goodbye tour came about because um, Steve was suffering from a hand problem, and so uh, we. Were, this is you know, four or five years ago, and so we thought. Um, he, he he wanted to end because uh, of his of his wrist, uh, but he's you know Steve's an amazing musician and he's learned to play a different way, and so that became less of a problem. And again, this thing about not saying the end, I thought the long goodbye was great because how long is, how long is long? You know, how long is a piece of string? That's very true. But it does put the world, uh, our purple world anyway, on on notice that sooner or later, you know, we will stop. <laughs> that's a that's a given, you know. We, we're humans, so uh, we will stop, but we don't know when. That's all. Well, I sincerely hope that uh, everybody is healthy and safe, and we get through this sooner than later, and that I get a chance to see you guys doing what you do best and being on that stage and uh, delivering a, a fantastic live set. I urge everybody to check out the new Deep Purple album. It truly is a, a, a fantastic rock record. It's called Whoosh. It's out now. Uh, Roger, best to your family, and and uh, it's so good to talk to you a little bit over on over the phone here. Anything you need, you know where to get me. And uh, best of luck with the new record, and keep me posted if you guys work on a second one already. I'd love to, okay, or a new one. Yes, I'd love sure. to hear about that. That'd and, be awesome. And and since we can't get out and play on stage, you know this these talks are the only way we can reach out. So I thank you for that for the opportunity, and uh, that's all we can do is is to talk about it. We can't play it. Yeah, yeah. Well, everybody can go buy it and listen to it and envision what it would be like if you could hear some of it live, at least for now. And one of these days we'll get that opportunity, hopefully, uh, like I said, sooner than later. All the best, Roger. Thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Always good to talk to you. Thanks. And stay safe, my friend. You too. Take care. We'll see you soon. Keep out of trouble. Don't touch anything you shouldn't. (laughs) I'll do my best. (laughs) All right, matey. Thank you, man. Take care. Thanks a lot. Thanks yep. a lot. Well, my thanks to Roger Glover. Great talking to him. Could talk to that guy for hours with all his history and all the great stories he has. We'll come back and be visited by a guy who has a connection to Roger Glover because he played in Rainbow with him, Graham Bonnet. 
Hi, this is Chris Myers. For more than three decades, I've covered some of the biggest events in sports and talked with some of the most fascinating personalities. But now I want to invite you to join me for my new podcast, CMI, the Chris Myers interview on Podcast One. Covered a lot of events, World Series, Red Sox, White Sox breaking through at their time. The Super Bowl as recently as Mahomes and the Chiefs coming back against the 49ers. I was there to grab Brady after he had that tremendous comeback against the Falcons in the Super Bowl and some tough times, the 89 Earthquake World Series that rocked the Bay Bridge and first to talk to O.J. Simpson live after both of his trials and on the air through the 1996 Atlanta Olympic bombings informing people as best we could at the time. We'll go in-depth on stories past, present, and future to the effect of the world of sports and everybody in and around it, from current athletes, Hall of Famers, and some people you and I know. Hope you tune in to CMI, the Chris Myers interview on Apple Podcast, Podcast One, and Spotify. Eddie Trunk back with you, and next up on this Double Dip interview show on this week's podcast, Graham Bonnet. Graham Bonnet has been a part of so many great hard rock albums over the decades, and now he's starting up his band Alcatraz once again. Graham talks about that and a whole lot more in the interview you're about to hear. Enjoy. How are you, Graham? Uh, I'm still here. Very well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I, uh... You know, I saw you perform, I guess it was two, three years ago, on a Monsters of Rock cruise under the name Alcatraz, yeah. and then you you actually, when I was watching the set, you actually played a cross-section of stuff from throughout, throughout your whole career, so even though it was Alcatraz in name, and you certainly played some Alcatraz, it was more, and I was thrilled about this, it was more a cross-section of your whole career. Yeah. Uh, tell me about the approach to that, and is that different than what you're doing now with Alcatraz? Uh, yeah, well, that was a different uh, lineup. Uh, I, I think you remember you wanted to come and sing on stage with them. I'm not quite sure. Did you say, <laughs> didn't you say something to me about you wanted to sing along with something or other? Hiroshima, one of the songs, was it? Didn't you say no, that nobody to me? Needs, I think you remember something like that. Nobody needs to hear me sing, Graham. <laughs> you got me confused because <laughs> I would never anyway, torture an audience like that. being very excited about singers. But it, unfortunately, it wasn't really Alcatraz, as you know. It was uh, Howie Simon was playing guitar and um, Tim Luce was our bass player. We just used the name Alcatraz like well, I thought, you know, we're going to call it the Graham Bonnet Band, but we thought, well, maybe we'd get a bigger audience if you use that name, which didn't really work out at that time. But now these days, um, when I have two guys from the original, hello, the original band, it's kind of a little bit more interesting who the hell we are now, you know. So that's uh, kind of cool that uh, Jimmy Waldo and Gary Shea are, are back with me. Um, so... You know, we made this album. I think it's pretty good. I haven't heard the whole thing. I never listened to what I record because I've had enough of it. But, <laughs> you know, it's, um, yeah, this is almost Alcatraz. We're missing, uh, Jan Uvina and also Ingve Malmsteen or, uh, Steve Vai, even though Steve wrote a track for the album, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, so, so Jimmy and Gary are back. You know, I knew Jimmy and Gary as a fan prior to Alcatraz, because they were in a band called New England that I liked a lot uh, prior to Alcatraz. How did you first connect with them, and how did you reconnect with them for another round with the band? Uh, Well, um, that was uh, many years ago when Andy Truman was our manager, and we were wanted to put a band together that was kind of like Rainbow, because I just left Rainbow. Uh, So we thought we'd need a keyboard player, 
um, you know, a good bass player, and eventually a, um, a drummer, and a guitar player, obviously. Uh, so they <laughs> they had a, an advert in a, a magazine. I can't remember what the magazine was, but it said bass player and drummer <laughs> ready for work or something, and it was uh, Gary and Jimmy. And uh, they stated that they had just uh, packed in with a band called um, New England, uh, that had one one hit, I believe. And so Andy said to me, our manager, that is, he said, well, we need people who are kind of well-known because we went through a lot of different people in our heads. Oh, this guy would be good. This guy would be good. Well, these two guys have just had a hit record, so we thought we'd get in touch with them. And we met up and uh, got along really well together, and we started rehearsing in my garage. And... Uh, then after that, we were looking for a guitar player and a drummer. But we got on for a while, just the three of us, trying to write music. But we wanted to be in, inspired by someone who played guitar like Richie Blackmore. That's what I was looking for. And uh, a keyboard, I mean, not a keyboard, a drummer who was, you know, near enough like Cozy Powell, <laughs> which is very hard to find, actually. But uh, anyway, eventually we got Jan Uvina, who was suggested to us, by um, uh, one of, uh, my manager, because he just left uh, Alice Cooper Band, which, again, was somebody who had a sort of a name. And then we needed a guitar player, which we found later, a guy that nobody kind of knew at the time. But um, the whole thing was trying to do... I was trying to do an, uh, sort of a rainbow revisited. So that's why Gary and Jimmy came in, because they fit the uh, bill perfectly. So the guitar player that you're referencing that nobody really knew at the time was Ingve, of yeah. course, who people who yeah. had the Steeler record, which was available as an import in the certainly yeah. in the underground sort of metal circles, certainly knew about him. But Ingve, you know, it's interesting because Ingve has always said that he wanted to he left Steeler because because he really wanted to be in a band. And I've I've talked to him about this and I've heard him say this. He had the opportunity to potentially join UFO, and he went and did Alcatraz with you because he didn't want to focus on playing other people's material and having to yeah. you know, play Michael Schenker or what have you. He wanted to start fresh with a clean slate, which I understand. Talk yeah. about, you know, we've heard so many stories, Graham, over the years about yeah. Ingve, good and bad. What was your experience with him like at that very, very young age? Well, you know, when I met him, he was so eager to join the band. It was ridiculous. Um, we, we phone call, you know, gave him a phone call, and he thought somebody was having a joke with him when uh, he was asked to join up with me and Gary and Jimmy. And uh, anyway, we got him to come down to the rehearsal room, and I remember he was sitting in the car with some of his friends, um, probably some of his band members or ex-band members. And uh, when he saw me walking toward him, he went, oh, my God, oh, my God, it's real, it's true. It's not a joke. I mean, this sounds silly, like an ego trip I'm on here, but I'm not. <laughs> no, <laughs> but, but he's because so, he's such he a big like, rainbow Blackmore so guy, it makes sense. Happy. Right, hey? right. I'm saying yeah, just because I mean, he because he's such a big because of your affiliation with Rainbow and him being Rainbow. such a huge Blackmore fan, it would make yeah. sense that anybody that was in Blackmore circle he would react like that. And certainly as a kid, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he was a Richie Blackmore fan to the max, you know, and uh, I could see that by his dress. The way he was dressed was like Richie. Anyway, he came into the studio, the rehearsal room, and. Um, I asked him to play. We got in touch with him later. This is another day. We got in touch with him later to ask him to come and play a song that wasn't a Richie song or whatever. Nothing to do with 
called Hard Rock or Happy Metal, whatever you want to call it. And it was more of a pop song that I'd recorded years ago. And we asked him to play that to see how he played. And he played incredibly well. And then um, it was just like he made the song something else that it wasn't before. And anyway, after that, we decided that, okay, now we're going to do a couple of rainbow tunes. And he... uh, was playing perfectly, absolutely perfectly. What a great player. I mean, I was just blown away by this kid. He was 19, I believe, at the time. And he was just, it was just fascinating to watch him play, apart from listen to him play. Did you, but where did you see problems? I mean, obviously he didn't last long in the band. He broke out and did his own thing. Was there, was yeah. there, was there some dust ups or did he kind of go off the no. rails quickly or how did it end? Well, you know, as we got through, you know, we did some touring, obviously, with Ingley, and he decided that he was the most important thing on stage, which was kind of a bit of a disappointment to me because I thought he knew how to react on stage. And when I'm singing, you don't play over me, you know, and that's what he was doing. He was kind of standing in front of me while I was doing, let's say, a verse to a song or something. And he was there standing and playing. Of course, everybody's looking at him, this kid with the, you know, with the, the fast hand, all these quick passages he was playing. That people were fascinated by him. He's taller than me, and he just got in front of me. And I had to ask him, please, don't do that, you know. When I'm singing uh, a passage which doesn't involve guitar solo, don't solo over my part, you know. And he he didn't understand that. So my manager, our manager had to talk to him to say, you know, Stage etiquette. You've got to stand where you are. When it's your turn, sh- you know, shine. But um, it went on like this for a while and became sort of a battle between he and I. And then one day I um, walked off stage and I tripped over his um, cable to his amp. And he was in the middle of his guitar solo. And I went to the bus. And I didn't know I pulled his uh, cable out of his amp. And suddenly, while I was talking to the bus driver outside, he comes rushing out and got hold of me by the throat. He said, you fucking bastard, what are you doing? And he got started pushing his thumbs into my throat really hard. And it was choking me, basically. And then one of our crew jumped on him and grabbed him by the neck, pulled him down, and said, you touch Graham one more time, I'll break your fucking neck. And that night was when we fired him. That's That was just like the final... You know, the final bloody, the last straw. He he was being sort of uncooperative when we were playing and just wanted the stage to be his and nobody else's. It was the band, and I could see he wanted to be on his own. So eventually he got what he wanted, you know. So, um, and he did very well, which is, he's a great player. I don't deny his talent, but sometimes his ego overtakes that, you know. Well, and, and uh, suffice it to say, it sounds like there's no relationship any longer with you and him. No, I mean, I haven't spoken to him since. I saw him at the NAM show probably, God, I don't know, eight years ago probably. And I just said, hey, how are you? He was signing for some people. There's a line of people lining up. And uh, one of the security guys came over and said, hey, you can't just jump to the front of the line. And he said, this is my friend. You can't. <laughs> it was kind of funny. But uh, that's the last time I saw him. And, um, you know, that's, as I said, that's so long ago. We don't keep in contact. But I was wanting, you know, I'm doing a, a, a new band now with uh, Bethany playing bass and Conrad Pesonato playing guitar um, from the original 
Graham Barnett band, if you will, who went on to be called Alcatraz, as you know. Um, but um, so, you know, he, I wanted him to write a song for this new album, which we're recording as we speak. Um, so I got it. I was hoping to get in touch, but it wasn't worth it. I said to um, the rest of the band, he's not going to be interested. And of course he wasn't. But uh, Steve Vai came along and wrote uh, a song for us. And well, for me, he and I wrote a song together. And uh, it's turned out really well. Steve sent us 60, 60 songs, you know. But he didn't play on the album, but Joe Stump did. He did his best uh, Steve Vai impersonation. So, you know, Ingve is on his own, and he that's the way he should be. He, he always should have been just, you know, the Ingve show, and that's about it. <laughs> it should well, be in a band. You, yeah, well, well, I want to talk to you about the current guitar player you have here in a second, but... What yeah. a what a what a coup, if you will, to go from you losing a rising star there that uh, you know problematic yeah. at the time in the band, and then you replace him with yeah. Steve Vai uh, for the next Alcatraz record. Not you know not necessarily a you know a, a, a too too shabby of a choice there either. How did you connect no. with Vai? Because that was just before you know, Vai took off as a solo artist. Yeah, I mean, again, it seems like uh, Alcatraz is a stepping stone to stardom for, for guitar players, uh, which, of, co- of course, keep, happened. It happened, and Steve became really pretty well known, and now he's doing stuff on his own or whatever. But, um, you know, he doesn't need to be in a band either. But at first, you know, Steve said to me, he said, I'm not the right guy for this band. I, I can't play like Ingve. I said, no, you don't. You play like Steve Vai, which, of course, is so different from Ingve altogether. And I really enjoyed playing, uh, I mean, writing with him, I should say. But he was a friend of a friend of a friend. And uh, one of the guys in the band found him just after he left um, Frank Zappa. And uh, we were delighted to have him, I must say, because he was just, as I said, just so different and so sort of not what you'd expect from a rock and roll guitar player. It was kind of taking a left turn when you should go straight ahead or a right turn when you should take a, um, you know, a straight ahead turn. It was just so different and very, very interesting. And I just enjoyed the second album we made with him uh, more than the first, you know, with Ingvay. Because mm. the Ingvay one was kind of like uh, testing the water to see if anybody was listening to what I'd done, you know, with this new band. Well, of course, Vi would go, you know, Vi would go on to do White Snake and David Lee Roth and all that as well, but yeah. have a huge solo career. And I was just thinking it's somewhat interesting because I'm sure you're aware of this, but there's this touring group that goes out under the name Generation Axe. And both Vi yeah. and Ingve are part of it, so they yeah. maybe they compare some Alcatraz notes out there on the road. I never put that <laughs> together uh, until just now. How did you yeah. end up with your your guitar player on your current album, uh, this Alcatraz yeah. sort of return album, if you will, Born Innocent? Joe yeah. Stump uh, sounds yeah. like another monster. Where did he come from? Well, he's uh, Joe Stump has been around for ten million years. I'm not saying he's old. <laughs> Nobody's as old as me. But I mean, he's been around for one. I played with them at a, a music school in L.A. years ago when um, a bunch of different musicians got together. There was a guitar player from Doors and the keyboard player from uh, Toto. Uh, Uli Roth was there. I remember. I don't remember everybody's name, so that's the point here. Um, so we did this thing, and I was asked to go along to this. Um, this 
show, so to speak, to play in front of up-and-coming musicians. And um, so I said, okay, but I don't have a band. So uh, Joe Stump was, uh, you know, picked out of the crowd of other musicians to come and play with me, and he wanted to play a couple of Rainbow songs, and uh, that's when I first met him. And then we were looking for another guitar player, you know, because we've had two or three guitar players in the new Alcatraz, so to speak. And somebody knew of Joe Summer. said, what about Joe Summer? I said, I know him. You know, so, hey, yeah, get him. He came along and uh, to rehearsal, and he's just perfect. He can, <laughs> he's a great mimic, let's say that. He can play like Ingvay, he can play like Richard Blackmore, he can play like Gary Moore, he can play like Steve Vai, if he wants to. You know, so he was a perfect fit for the band because he could play any of the songs that I've recorded and make it sound like the original. Yeah, I mean, that's no small feat, uh, covering the material those guys uh, created and, no, of course, I mean, he's, the, the he's new stuff. amazing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you have some special guests performing on the record as well, Graham, I understand? Uh, yeah, there's... Uh, we've got... Um, oh, I've got a track from Chris and Pelletieri. Um, which isn't Chris playing, but, but the track is by uh, by him and I. Uh, but we have Bob Kulik play on two songs, and he wrote that with me, them with me. And uh, we suddenly lost Bob; he was gone. I, I couldn't believe that. Actually, it's like somebody's playing a joke um, because Bob was so full of life, and uh, you know, he's one of those guys that you can't imagine wouldn't be in the world forever. He was so. Yeah into music and just always excited about new stuff and uh, a great player and a great arranger of songs, you know? Um, so Bob did play on the album. It may have been his last recording. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised at that. He was uh, living in Vegas and wasn't doing very much. I don't think, well, nobody is right now because nobody's playing out live. And, uh, it was a great privilege to have him there and, uh, do what he did. And, uh, God bless him, you know? Yeah, I noticed that he was on there. I I knew Bob quite well. I think he had a you know rough year or two there towards the end of his life, unfortunately yeah. dealing with some stuff. Uh, but I was uh, surprised to see him on the record because, as you said, uh, nobody could ever question his talent. And uh, yeah. it may very well be the last thing that that he recorded and and did will will be on this Alcatraz record. You reference the yeah. fact that nobody's really doing that much right now. Uh, right. there, there are Alcatraz. I mean, there's nothing you can really do because you don't know what's going to happen when touring. I mean, everybody's in the same boat when touring's going to resume. I did notice on the Alcatraz website though that there are dates, but they're all next year at this point, right? Yeah, I mean, we've canceled everything. I was supposed to play with Michael as well. Um, I can't remember September or something, or you know, everything's been canceled. Um, so you know. They're going out live and playing is uh, who knows when that's going to happen again because they reckon this freaking virus is going to stick around forever. You know, it's like a flu kind of thing. Uh, yeah. It'll never go away. I mean, it scares the shit out of me. I'm making sure my kids are all wearing masks and my grandkids, and, you know, I don't want anybody else to get sick because um, we lost so many people. You know, I don't know what happened to Bob. I've no idea. Have you any idea what, what happened to him? Because uh, I couldn't make, I didn't get any answer from his brother, so I'm not sure how he died. Do you know? Um, I I don't. I'll leave it at I don't know for a fact. But um, yeah. you know, 
uh, we'll we'll see when the family, if in fact, wants to release it. Yeah. I, I, I've heard some things, but it's not my place to say. But um, yeah, you know, it is. It's it it. You know, I knew Bob quite well. It's it's very sad, yeah. and he did he did you know he did struggle with some stuff in the last year or two of his life yeah. in terms of yeah. dealing with some things. And I I just uh, it, it's a very tragic story. But yeah, I don't think that they've released the family has released yeah. the cause of death yet. So we'll leave it to them to. To reveal that, yeah, I know um, what you're talking about. I yeah. get it. Yeah, yeah. okay. Uh, yeah, Graham, if, if and, I, uh, unfortunately, but he yeah. did play on the album and bless his heart, amazingly well. Yeah, yeah, great, super talented guy. You mentioned Michael, and of course, Michael is Michael Schenker, and you yeah. have been playing with Michael again in the Michael Schenker Fest. You've done records with him. I want to, I want to yeah. ask you about that, and also, I want to ask you about uh, speaking of people who passed away, Martin Birch who recorded yeah. you on Assault Attack, and I'd like to get a few thoughts about that experience. Now, Graham, you have been playing and doing yeah. some stuff with Michael Schenker again, who, of course, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, and I love Assault Attack, which is one of my all-time favorite records he made, which is the one record uh, you sang on the entire album, <laughs> and the, an album that was brilliantly produced, I thought, by Martin Birch, who sadly we found out yeah. passed away. I was shocked to learn uh, he was only 71 years old, uh, uh, yeah. On Sunday, he passed away. Can you talk about what it was like being recorded and working with Martin Birch and what that experience was like for your your yeah. memories of him? Oh, sure, man. Yeah, I, 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 I've never met such a a fun guy. You know, as a producer, he would um, when I used to we were recording in uh, France in a chateau in a chateau like you did, but back then, and um, <clears throat> he would say to me. Um, we both had a little bit of a problem with drinking, unfortunately. And uh, I would go down in the morning, probably about 11 o'clock, uh, to do vocals. And he would say to me, have you been drinking, Graham? I said, why? He says, your voice sounds different. Oh, okay. He said, no, just piss off. I'll get Michael in. He can do some parts. So he, he was kind of, he knew when I had a beer or two. So it was really... Had to be sober for the session, but I remember he and I standing outside the chateau one night. Uh, we'd both been drinking, and looking up at these stars, we both fell over uh, backwards. And Martin said to me, "It's good down here, isn't it?" I said, "Yeah, you're going to stay here all night." He said, "Maybe," <laughs> but he, but you know, we had a great time making that album. It was such fun, and he knew me inside out you know, vocally, so it was really great. I remember he, when I first met him uh, with, uh, who was I? I was with Cozy. Cozy was in the band at the time, Cozy Powell, and we met in a pub of all places, and uh, I was introduced to, to Martin and by Cozy, and uh, he, Martin said to me, you know something, you haven't made any good records since 1968, which is like the first record I ever had with my cousin Trevor, uh, we were called the Marbles. The song was called Only One Woman. He said, you've made nothing as good as that since then. And I thought, what a fucking thing to say. And he was he was out of it. He was drunk, and he got told off by his wife, I seem to remember, and he apologized to me next day. And he said, oh, I'm really sorry, Graham. I wasn't thinking what I was saying. And I've been told off by my wife. She wanted me to sleep in the bed, blah, 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 you know, stuff like that. So, you know, he was um, very honest, 
I loved him, and what a great producer. Incredible. You know, he knew, as I said, the voice, the guitar sound, everything. Uh, of course, he worked with uh, Deep Purple and others, as you know. Uh, another funny thing, I remember we were staying not, not too far from Paris, and uh, he said, my girlfriend came to the, no, my wife, my ex-wife came to the chateau, and she had this dress on, which was like layers of sort of frills or something. And I don't know what you call that, but anyway, uh, he said, oh, I'd like to get one of those for my wife. And uh, my wife, my ex-wife said to him, well, you have to go to this place in Paris. And so he went to the store, this woman's store, and he said, uh, I want to dress my wife like that one up there. And she said, the person in the store said, well, um, what size is she? And he said, I I don't know, but she's the same size as me. (laughs) So he had to try the dress on. And he said (laughs) he was going to keep it on, come back to the studio and give us all the thrill. But he took it off. But it was just a funny moment. I can imagine him doing that because he was like, he didn't care about shit like that. He wasn't embarrassed. So he tries tries his dress on. It was the right size. And uh, he took it home to his wife later. But he was a funny guy and uh, just a great producer. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. It, do, you, do you have any idea why he retired so young? I mean, I had heard yeah. he had a great interest in martial arts and he moved away from the music industry. I mean, he did all those classic Iron Maiden albums. And then yeah. he sort of, uh, you know, I thought when I heard he passed away, I figured, well, they were going to say he was about 90 years old because he had been retired yeah. for decades. And to, yeah. to have been retired in your, I, I guess, what would have been his late 40s and basically the yeah. prime of his production years was was stunning to me to learn that. You have any idea why he got out so early? I, I have, you know, I have no idea. I remember he's into martial arts and stuff like that, but I don't know why he retired. I have no idea. I didn't even realize he was, what, 71? So yeah. just a couple of years younger than me. So um, I, I really don't know. Um, I haven't, I haven't been in touch with him since uh, the days of leaving, leaving the band, so to speak, or being fired from the band. It was um, a long time ago, and mm. I haven't spoken to him or kept in touch with him in any way. So um, I have no clue. I have no clue. But it's um, a sad moment. I know that. Yeah, when you look back, Graham, you you sort of referenced this a second ago because many people in the hard rock world first saw you when you came out singing with Rainbow, the Down to Earth album. I mean, man, when you think about the guitar players you've worked with, whether it be Blackmore or Michael Schenker or Steve Vai or Ingve or the list goes on and on. I mean, you've, you've been with some incredible guitar players and continue to be. But when, when yeah. people first saw you and they first heard that voice and then they saw you come out with Rainbow <laughs> as the replacement for Dio, there there were challenges there for you right you didn't necessarily look the part and you came yeah. from you came from a whole different world and were sort of dropped into that hard rock world can you talk a little bit about what that was like for you yeah yeah i mean i think i've told you this story before but it was like you know i had the short hair and all that stuff and uh, i remember when um i was picked up from the airport to go and audition with rainbow um uh, I think Roger Glover picked me up. And he said, I knew you'd look like that or something. Anyway, went to the rehearsal room and I did my audition piece and got the job. And they said, okay, you know, 
what, what do we do from here? I said, well, I'm going back to London. This is when I still lived in England. And I went back to my manager's, um, my manager's uh, you know, place, and I said, well, I, I don't fit with that band at all. You know, I have the wrong kind of hair. They've got all the so-called rock gear on, except for Don Airy. He was very casual. Um, but they had that rock thing, you know, this, the costume, the, the uniform. And I said, I'm not <laughs> like that. Because I was into, you know, more sort of R&B stuff and pop music or whatever you want to call it, but not so-called hard rock or heavy metal, uh, etc. And um, I just said, it's not, it's not for me. Um, but anyway, my manager, of course, said, yes, it is, because he thought he could make some money here. And so I went, I went back there to, um, to, to uh, France, and uh, we started to record vocals. And, you know, Roger Glover was giving me an idea where to put the vocals in amongst this sort of semi-classical music. Because I, I, I said, well, well, where's the verse? Where do I do this? Where do I do, where's the chorus? What do I do here? Because I always write songs uh, with the vocal in mind. You know, um, the verse, the, the bridge, the this, the that. And then I work out an arrangement. But this, the arrangement was already there. And I didn't know where to place vocals. And so Roger guided me through this, thank, thank him, Thank you, Roger, because I didn't know what to do. And so Roger would put down a rough idea of a vocal, and then I'd improvise on that. Roger wrote all the words, but I improvised on all the melodies to all the tracks. And now I think about it, I was never credited for that. It was just Roger Glover, Richie Blackmore, but the melodies were basically mine. Um, so, you know, it was a bit... I, you know, I sort of thought about that later in my life, you know, later along the road. I should have been credited, but I wasn't. Um, but, you know, uh, that time for me was very odd because I'd never been in a band before like this. I'd always been used to just doing things on my own. You know, I had my own uh, solo career. But I got the job because Richie heard my album, my uh, solo album, and one of the tracks was, Would He Still Love Me Tomorrow? And he... He loved that song, and I, I kind of got the job because of the album. And Richie playing it over and over again when I went to uh, stay at his house once. So, you know, that's part of the story anyway. Yeah. It's amazing to me because you you have you sang on what I think are two really great records. And Down to Earth, the, the first time hard rock fans heard you with Rainbow was a successful record since you've been gone all night long. I mean, those... The, you know, I know yeah. Blackmore really wanted to take strides to get on American radio, and you were sort of the bridge for that between Dio and then what would be Joe Lynn Turner. You really put that took yeah. that first step forward, getting him American radio with those songs. Yeah. But obviously, uh, you know, it didn't last. I always found that interesting about you is that you you sang on two really great records with Rainbow and Michael Schenker, but it was one and done. And I don't know if that was more your choice or their choice, but it was just very short lived. But I often wondered in both scenarios what would have been if it would have continued i guess we get some sense of that now with you know doing some work with michael again but it's a really interesting mm. thing how you were sort of just dropped in in those situations yeah well you know i with um with my club is fired because of my <laughs> my being shit-faced on our first gig uh, in uh, sheffield in england i mean i was just completely gone and messed up the whole show and revealed myself to the audience uh, with my zipper going down and all that. It was just intentionally uh, you know, or by accident, Graham intentionally. <laughs> by accident, yeah. But 
but I started to play with it like it was part of the show, you know. But oh, I, I ran for God. my life that night. I got off stage, and they finished the whole set without me, as a lot of people know. I've told this story a billion times. And uh, I ended up going back to, uh, to London, and I was supposed to do a show with the band in a couple of days, and a big show, and it was... You know, my manager said to me, they fired you, Graham. You can't. So they're getting back Gary, <clears throat> Gary Barden. So Gary actually went out there and sang some of the songs he didn't really know that I'd uh, written with Michael. Um, but uh, Rainbow, when I left that, that band, because I thought Cozy was going to leave. He said, I'm leaving. And, and he did. And then when he did leave, Don Airy said to me, well, if he's, he's gone, there's no fun anymore. So I'm going to leave too. I said, really, Don? Well, I'm with you. Because we were rehearsing for the second album that I was going to be on. And nobody's really turning up to rehearsal. There'd be like three of us, not the whole band. You know, there'd be uh, one day Richie would come in, the next day we'd go and be me and Don and, uh, you know, uh, Roger Glover and the drummer. And it was just like, uh, okay, what are we doing? And nothing was happening until Russ Ballard sent us a song called I, Su I Surrender. And so I put some backing vocals down to that and was going to sing the lead. And then we got into rehearsal again and nothing was happening. As I said, there was no band contact. It was like, okay, well, where is everybody? We got one song by Russ Ballard. We can do that. And I just looked at Don and said, well, you know, you're talking about leaving. I said, I'm, I'm going back to L.A. And I went to, back to L.A. And that's when I got a phone call from Bruce Payne, the manager of the band, saying, well, if you want to come back, you can do the songs you like, and we'll get another singer to do the songs you don't like. So yeah. I, I said, well, that's not going to work, two singers. That's a bit weird for me. I said, no, I don't want to do that. So I, I fired myself, basically. And I think it was the wrong thing to do, now, looking back, because I think I could have done the whole album and sort of enjoyed it and, you know, had a better, <laughs> a better career than I did have at the time. So I just left and I hung around hoping that I would get a, a band together myself, which I did eventually. You know, I find it interesting, too, that you're saying that you, you didn't want to do a situation where you might be splitting a record with another singer. And now the work yeah. you're doing with Michael Schenker, you're actually sharing a stage and <laughs> records with about four singers. <laughs> so yeah. that kind of came back yeah, around, I right? Mean, that, that, that's part of the show. You know, when it first, when that was first asked to do that, I knew all the, the guys from you know, the other singers. So it was just going to be a live thing. And I thought that was going to be it. Then suddenly we're, we're recording. I remember one afternoon um, we were rehearsing and uh, Michael Voss, the producer, came into the studio and said, uh, Graham, do you want to come and record? I said, what? You know, what are you talking about? And so we found ourselves recording as well as rehearsing. And suddenly I was in this band with three other singers. And we all had our, you know, songs to sing from the, uh, you know, our, our own little album we recorded with Michael. So each uh, guy had songs to sing on stage from the recordings they'd made with Michael. And that was it, I thought. But um, suddenly it was, yeah, we're going to play live. So we had to rehearse, you know, really diligently to uh, get some kind of a sound together because I wasn't ready to sing live and, and record at the same bloody time. But anyway, it was a, a very sort of rushed thing. We're taking photographs, we're making a video, we're recording, we're rehearsing all in one day. And, you know, I said, well, what's next? What other surprises are there? You know, 
but it, it was uh, it was worthwhile in the end, you know, because uh, it was good fun, uh, you know, playing live with those guys. Again, did, I'm not saying I've been forgiven. Did did any uh, last thing, Graham? I won't hold you much longer. Did any uh, did any managers or artists that you performed with ever ask you or attempt to get you to change your look? And to alter the way you look and say, hey, you got to grow your hair out and you got to get the uniform yeah. on? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, uh, Richie, of course. And I would like to say to Richie now, <laughs> if I could, you know, that uh, my hair is very long. I haven't had it cut for how many months has this virus been going on? You know, <laughs> yeah. So I've got a few few months of hair growth. And uh, I've let it go back to its original color, which now is silver. <laughs> <laughs> but it looks blonde from a distance. But, um, you know, so when I get a haircut, <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, everybody tried to do it. Well, Bruce especially. Bruce Payne said, whatever, grow your hair a little bit, you know. But I said, I don't want it long. gets in the damn way. I used to have hair down to my waist. And when I used to record in the studio, I was always brushing it back to get it, you know, so I could put the, the headphones on properly and keep my ears clear of the hair. And uh, my girlfriend at the time said, well, why don't you just cut your hair? And so I did, and that was back in 1970-something. And so I cut my hair, to, you know, to my old uh, sort of teddy boy comb-back 1950s hairdo, and uh, I started to wear 1950s clothes, which I've always done. I've always been a, a big fan of that era, the way people looked back then. Although it's great, I thought the women looked great, and I thought the guys looked good too. You know, so it was just a thing I had, and I still have. It's um, it's weird, but uh, in the end, it fit because, well, the first I remember the first night I went out with Rainbow with the short hair and all, and the front row. I might have told you this story. I'm not sure, but in the front row were these kids giving me the finger. These guys, you know, it was like four of them uh, giving me the finger because I looked the way I looked. And then when I started singing, they sort of stopped doing that for a little bit. And then um, we, yeah, we started, yeah, I was very loud. And we started to do um, Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow? So what I did was go over, sit down on the edge of the stage in front of these four guys and say, Tonight you're mine completely. You know, start singing that. Tonight you're mine completely. You give your love so sweetly. And they started laughing. And they knew I was just having a joke because I thought it was funny too. This short-haired bank manager or game show guy coming on stage. I understand. I don't look right, but I think in the end, you'll appreciate who I am by the way I sing, not by the way I look. Sure, and it it made you unique and stand out and different to, from everybody else, as you said earlier, wearing the yeah. uniform. So I always thought that it was, uh, you know, it was definitely cool. Last, I promise you, last thing because I just thought about this: you have played right. with and been in bands with some super volatile people, like you know, um, obviously Ingve and and um, Richie Blackmore and Michael Schenker. The one guy that you have rekindled with and revisited with is Shanker in recent years. Yeah. I imagine, now I know Michael fairly well at this point. Michael yeah. to me now is a, a changed, much better guy to deal with than he probably was when you did Assault Attack. What are the, what yeah. do you see a very different Michael Shanker now to work with than you did back in the early 80s? Uh, yeah, I mean, now I see him smiling for a change, but, but he's still the same 
uh, he's got that sort of German military thing about him. You stand here, you stand there, and when you come out here, he's very organized when it comes to the production of the stage show, you know, which is great. I mean, it's good, but it's just so funny. Oh, no, you, no, you don't go there, you go over <laughs> What are you doing? I mean, he gets sort of upset if you don't do what he says, because... He likes to organize his show. After all, it's the Michael Schenker band. And if right. it wasn't for Michael giving me the job, I wouldn't have a fucking job with him. But it's his show. He's very organized. And uh, as I said, very, very Germanic in uh, what we do, which is very sort of like military-like. Uh, but the show every night runs so smoothly because we did rehearse what he suggested we do on stage. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, Graham, I truly hope that you're able to do some shows with this new lineup of Alcatraz. I know, like I said, you have yeah. stuff in, in next year in Europe. I hope you get to do some stuff in the U.S. The record sounds yeah. great. It's out now. It's called Born Innocent. And as, uh, as Graham mentioned, Gary and Jimmy from the original Alcatraz back in, you got guitarist Joe Stump and it, uh, it's just sound, you know, it sounds exactly what you would want to and expect from, you know, old school Alcatraz. So I'm, I'm glad you're yeah. doing it, and it's always great to visit with you. I thank you very much for the time. Thanks, Ed. It's good to talk to you again, man. Really is. When I'm when I'm God back in you. L.A. <laughs> when I'm back in L.A. and things are normal because I was coming out every month, I'll definitely look you up and try to get together. Okay. It'd be great to see you. Well, thanks to Graham Bonnet. Great to talk with him. He's always a very transparent guy and always gives a great interview i appreciate the time with him and thanks earlier to roger glover as well really interesting to hear those interviews back to back even though they weren't done at the same time they certainly did have some crossover those two artists spending time together in rainbow on that down to earth album makes you think a little bit too what rainbow would have sounded like if graham would have continued in the band and if roger would have continued with the band of course roger did for another album or two but then eventually went back to Deep Purple when they ended up doing the reunion stuff with Blackmore. And great stuff from uh, Roger earlier about Blackmore as well. So hope you enjoyed all that. Check out the new Alcatraz album and check out the new Deep Purple album, Whoosh. Both are out now. Thank you so much for listening to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Please follow on social media, especially Twitter, where I am most active, at Eddie Trunk. Instagram, fan page on Facebook, EddieTrunk.com is the official online home. And be sure to listen to me each and every day, talking rock with you and bringing you so many interviews and much, much more daily on Trunk Nation. Hear it live on Volume Sirius XM Channel 106, Monday through Friday, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Nightly replays, 10 to midnight Eastern, and everything is available on demand on the SiriusXM app. The interviews you hear every week on this podcast originated and aired live on my SiriusXM radio show. Katie Irizarry is my producer for this podcast. You guys have yourselves a great week. Catch you next Thursday for another all-new episode.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.